Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Oof, sorry. Wait till no. I tell you what's coming next. You're going to love it. Oh, okay. Right, here we I'm go. Ready. I'm ready. podcast is brought to you by soccer 90 new mls gear has arrived y'all including a brand new fc dallas dallas till i die scarf team patches and tees check out the new arrivals and make soccer 90 your source for fc dallas and north texas sc gear and of course don't forget listeners of third degree receive 25 percent off when you use the code third degree to buy all your goodies at checkout at soccer90.com Well, hello there, FC Dallas Curious fan. Welcome to another edition of Third Degree, the podcast. And boy, howdy, is this one chock full. So much so, we're going to have to break it up into individual parts. Hi, I'm Peter. And joining me are my two normal amigos. First, all the way from somewhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Dan Crook. Hello, Peter. I'm uh, currently in the lab working on cloning myself for covering the Gold Cup games at Toyota Stadium and and uh, also co- the Cotton Bowl at the same time. And at AT&T Stadium? Will you be at all that, three? That, that won't be the same day. Oh, okay. Very good. Well, good luck in cloning yourself. That'll take a lot of extra flesh. And, of course, your hero, my hero, everybody's hero, founder, editor of ThirdDegree.net, the good Buzz Carrick. Hi, Peter, calling in today from my office, but I have my puke bucket ready because I think I'm going to need it here in a bit. well we got a little bit of a treat today and it kind of saved today's pod because up until this morning i thought oh great we're gonna get to talk about texas sister kissing and that morbidly sad uh, draw between dallas and houston but no the players association saved us with a salary dump of epic proportions with one of the meatiest pieces of news we could possibly imagine. So just to make this podcast all the more special, we brought in a very special guest on the hotline with us now, the amazing Steve Fenn, the Tableau God, as Dan calls him. <laughs> Welcome to the pod, Hello, Steve. Hello, everybody. Not sure I live up to that moniker quite, but uh, I appreciate it. Steve, by the way, just officially, because I've always wondered what this was, uh, what the official title was, Data Visualization Consultant. Now, that's pretty haughty, Steve. Yeah, you know, it pays the bills. Good. Awesome. Well, uh, so this morning, we're all kind of like eating our bagels and drinking our coffee, and then we spit all of that out when we found out (laughs) that Frank O'Hara is sitting on a almost $3 million deal this year. Uh, and the Clark and Dan Hunt uh, way overpaid for that particular player. Yeah, I, I must say, Peter, that I literally almost crashed my car <laughs> because <laughs> I was driving when somebody texted me or some some other like that. And, and um, look, this is a case for me, and, and Steve can chime in here in a minute. Um, look, Dan Hunt fell in love with this guy uh, in the Champions League way back when Pachuca played here in Dallas, and he scored against FC Dallas. And since that point, Dan, and at the time, 
uh, Calvijo and probably Oscar were on board with the idea of trying to get this guy. Um, and they didn't do what I would call put on their big boy pants. And the only one of those guys that's still around is Dan Hunt because Calvijo has, of course, passed away. And maybe he was already sick by then. So maybe it was Luis Muzi who's left and Oscar has left. So Dan Hunt is still here. And he brought in Andre Sonata and Luchi Gonzalez. And then they went and finally got this guy, but they didn't buy him. They waited, what, three years to get him. And by then he's 31 going on 32, not the player he was. And so you're overpaying for a guy that your owner fell in love with. And if anyone wants to question that, you can go back and look up the Dan Hunt interviews where he specifically mentions Hara scoring against them in the Champions League and how impressed they were. And we got to get a guy like that. And yet they didn't bother to actually go pay for him and get him and make that phone call and say, how much is it going to cost me? Two million, five million. Do you take Vimo? Can I pay pallet? You know, get the guy in here when you wanted him. Instead, you waited and now you're overpaying for a guy who's passed it. Steve, uh, my immediate question for you is, is because you're the guy that digs into all of this data and you and you put it in this beautifully uh, graphical interface, is there another most uh, more confusing salary deal in Major League Soccer than what we found out about Hara this morning? Well, the collective FC Cincinnati roster might qualify, um, <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, they they are they have more millionaires on that roster than anyone else in, in MLS and uh, and then they went out and signed Jeff Cameron today that's not included in the salary dump so I I, I would give them the award collectively um, and uh, but who uh, Yahara I mean I the only place I disagree with Buzz is that looking at the numbers. Even three years ago, I wouldn't pay this much for Hara because his entire Pachuca career, a big chunk of his scoring was off of PKs. And they already had Ziegler to take the PKs at the time that they signed Hara. And, and you know, finding a, a useful person to take the PKs is not that difficult of a, of a task. Um yeah, he would score some, and and in his peak with Pachuca, he was getting 0.59 non-PK goals plus assists per 90, which is a good rate. It's not the type of thing that you get from these other players that are making this kind of money in MLS. I mean, the the, the type of tier we're in here at $3 million a year is, uh, is well, Nicoladero is cheaper. <laughs> you, uh, Nani is cheaper. Uh, Carlos Gil is in there, um, and, and then a little bit above there. That's, I mean, if you're gonna go this far, Joseph Martinez is making three point nine. <laughs> I mean, why why not go find an actual goal scorer in his prime if you're gonna pay this much money per year? I do not do not understand it. All right, so Buzz and Dan, and uh, you know, Buzz, I'm not 100% sure that this isn't your fault because I I know (laughs) that at the beginning of this deal, you were the one that I first heard that it was Dan Hunt in particular that had this weird fascination or infatuation with Hara. And we talked about it on the pod a long time ago, or you, you said it on our radio show however long ago, 
and that kind of stuck. And now it's grown to such proportions that I see it tweeted as just common fact all the time that, you know, this was Dan Hunt's baby. He drove it. He's the one that insisted they sign this guy and he didn't care how much it cost. But I am I am. And I know that you've referenced some videos where he brings it up and stuff. But Dan says stuff on camera and on radio that's uttered bullshit all the time. So I'm I'm really serious wondering, do we really believe that the Frank O'Hara two million plus a year deal is singularly the doing of Dan Hunt? Uh, well, first of all, if you want to talk about absurd signings, we could also throw in the name from Inter-Miami, the Pellegrini guy who they have had to now loan out. Um, but I'm sure that if you went to FC Dallas now, to Dan or to Lucci or to Zanata, any of them would give you a textbook answer about the entire technical staff evaluating Hara and all that stuff. But the bottom line is, from when they first saw him, as I mentioned before, the only person that's left is Dan Hunt. Muzi's gone, Clavillo's gone, and Pereja are gone. The only person with any responsibility for signings that's still here is the owner. And so it took them till, what, the end of 2019 to actually, or was it it's even partway into 2020 before right. they could get the guy. So you're talking about, is that four years of waiting for a guy? The only mm-hmm. guy still around is Dan Hunt. So you may... Get, get them to say, and they might even quasitly admit that Lucci signed off on the signing. I'm sure he did when the owner tells you this is what he wants. I'm sure Zanata is the one that got the deal done when your owner boss tell, that just hired you, tells you to go out and get a guy. I'm sure they were on board on some level. But like Danielson, who at the time, for sure 100% got buried on Steve Morrow without Morrow wanting it. And Morrow fought tooth and nail to make sure that guy only had a one-year deal. Nobody did that this time because he's on his second year now. And I'm, I don't know for a fact, but I promise, I don't promise. I'm going to assume that there's going to be a third year of this deal nightmare to come with this guy. Cause who takes a two-year <laughs> deal, right? It's going to be a three, right? Don't you think? So the only guy left with any responsibility is Dan Hunt. So they're going to say whatever they want to say. Nothing will ever convince me this isn't 100% a Dan baby because I remember the tone and voice he had when he was raving about Pachuca and the Champions League, even though it was three or four years later when they finally got him. Uh, Dan, I was going to ask you real quick here because you wrote a, a pretty lengthy article for Buzz's uh, website today that kind of broke it all down. Any, I'm, just, I'm interested to know, uh, after you dug into the numbers, since you're uh, around the team so much, what's your reaction to this news? I mean, my first reaction was Buzz's uh, almost mispronunciation of Hunt was uh, hilarious then. Um, I mean, it, 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 I was kind of astounded. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a doctor's appointment reading the numbers earlier and kind of uh, going, what the hell is this about? Um, I, I kind of think, you know, when Dan Hunt talked about, and, you know, he's mentioned it multiple times, so Buzz is totally right. It, it was totally his baby when uh, Dan said the second he scored that goal in Pachuca uh, at, in the away game, I said we had to get him and we've put in multiple bids over the years that were turned down and we had to wait it out. Um, when they talked about him being the biggest contract in FC Dallas history, I kind of took that as, oh, like a million and a half. Okay, that's not terrible. Right. Not, no, that's not saying much. <laughs> not a quarter of your roster spend. Uh, it came up to 24.3% of their like base salary. 
Well, okay, hold on a second, because I swear, and I don't know where this was sourced or how I came about this impression, but up until this morning, I was under the idea that his salary was just somewhere slightly north of a million dollars. Like, oh my God, the Hunts finally eclipsed the million dollar window to get somebody, and they're paying him like a million and ten dollars. I had hard. Did anybody know? I mean, did did we? Am I right? And that was kind of the general thinking. I think we just hypothesized because that glass ceiling was a million that it was just over a million, not like a specific amount over it, but just in general. Yeah, so, I mean, it seemed like if they were going to, if if it was going to be bigger than that, they would have bragged about it a bit more. Like, yeah, if you're we've paying done this double much, our biggest ever salary, yeah. Right, like, if, 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 if you're going to pay this much, then that's, you know, part of that is probably considered marketing in a sense so why wasn't this like you know brag about how much you're spending and and so i've got all these salary releases across the years and out of curiosity i um i i ranked all of the fc dallas ones from every single season so uh from hara's 3.0 this year 2.9 last year those are one two with a bullet then there's julian de guzman but Toronto FC was still paying most of that salary, so right. it doesn't really count. Third place is Rito Ziegler last year. He was making a million dollars in 2020. Then you've got Mauro Diaz earned a good payday towards the end at, um, at 880000 in 2017. Then you've got Danielson. There's another name to mm. talk about in the old days. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they... Yeah, so he was making about eight eighty as well. Ziegler what was, was making. What, what was Davino making? The Mexican center that back. Was, traffic I, I believe that was pre two thousand seven. We only uh, started getting salary releases when the players' association started uh, in that year. Okay. Well, I thought Davino was after. Um, or maybe it was. Danielson. Hold on, let me. Uh, let me. I think he was the year after. The yeah, I think he was the yeah, and I don't think we ever knew what those guys were making while Steve's looking that up. And 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 again, I I you know I that's the mystery in all of this is for all of the talk of how cheap they are and they'll never pay anybody over a certain amount of money. You know, if they had, if I had found out that Hara was making one point five or one point six, I, I I guess I wouldn't have been all that blown away. But when I started seeing two point one. I just couldn't believe my eyes. They had doubled it like that. And the other thing, Steve, that I think we should probably take a minute just to allow you to explain a little bit is the difference in the two ca- the two columns in the spreadsheet that they put out every you know six months or whatever it is. Because there's basic salary and then there's guaranteed compensation and there's some kind of vagaries in that math. Correct? Uh, a little bit. It's not. It's not. That complex. I'll pull up the the official definition of that from the Players Association in a moment. Um, but you're right. Davino was actually uh, 2008, and he was making 400 thousand. It was not a huge salary. I um, mean, <laughs> that was. And to put into put that into context, Paxton Pomacall is making 600 thousand. Well, consider at the time too that the second highest paid player was Cunningham, who was on a base of 245. So yeah. Davino right. was almost not quite, but. A, Fifty uh, percent more than the next highest player, and after that, the highest guy was Arturo on one sixty six and Victor Sakura on one sixty three. So the structures are changing. You know, constant growth. It's a very different day now. I was gonna say, if you really want to laugh, David Ferreira won MLS MVP on three hundred thousand. 
what I thought was valuable here would be to uh, just make sure we explain the, the, the definitions a little bit for everybody, because I, the one thing that we should all be fair about is these are not definitive absolute numbers. Uh, there are some kind of the, like the, the guaranteed compensation is kind of the average of the entire deal, including any bonuses or signing bonuses along the uh, along the course of the deal. Correct. Right. So the, the guaranteed compensation includes the base salary and all signing and guaranteed bonuses annualized over the term of the player's contract, including option years. Um, so they're, they're taking the, and, and all of this, I mean, I've, I've spoken to the MLSPA about this uh, directly. All of this is taken straight from contracts. Now, you and I know, uh, you know, if, if you speak to a player, you speak to an agent, Lifting a number directly from a contract isn't total hard and fast truth because, you know, all, all the different clauses that can be in there. And, and, and so the two numbers are really there to, to try to convey that there is some vagary. Um, but I don't, I don't really respect it when, um, when, when you know, and, and owner, I think, Merritt Paulson came out and, and called something BS and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and, you know, Perhaps something got renegotiated after the after things were compiled for release, but these are numbers taken straight from contracts. Okay. There's some gray area in in some interpretation of it, but um, you know, yeah, they're they're real numbers. Okay. Um, well, they're, I did, they're I, not the salary cap numbers because you we we certainly know that TAM and GAM and all that other stuff goes into everything, but um, you know, the, this is what they're making. Okay. Uh, all right. So the question I really have now, Buzz, is that was it was there were a bunch of numbers in here that kind of blew me away. I'm wondering beyond the Frank O'Hara thing because I'm not really sure what else to say about it other than, you know, I, I'm fascinated to see how how much longer this goes on based on his performances uh, of late. Uh, is were there any other particular numbers for anybody that really kind of caught you off guard for Dallas? Uh, not particularly. The thing about Hara is now you can understand why we said that he was going to play because of how much he was getting paid and why um, Cobra got dumped without any real competition. You can see it now. Um, Hedges is higher than I expected, considering that he's not a DP. That means there's a big buy-down on him. Um, the other one that jumped out at me is that I thought Brisson was going to take a pay cut, and he did not get a pay cut. What I think must have happened was that he must have had escalators in this contract that were going to be significantly higher. And so this is a pay cut relative to that. Um, O'Brien is making starter money that he clearly was intended to walk in and play. Freddie Vargas, as a corollary, is not making starter money. He makes de- um, like homegrown kind of money, which underscores the idea that he was a player that they thought they were going to develop, not walk in and start, which is why... Uh, left wing is still open in a lot of ways and both Paxton and Jesus make starter money. You know, I, I kind of use Ryan Hollingshead as the base of what a starter money is since he's like the lowest paid of the you know guys. Jimmy Maurer deserves a raise for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Emma Tuomasi's on a um, generation Adidas contract, which is why his is higher than you would expect because those guys get paid pretty high when they sign early in college like that. Same with Brandon Cervania. His number is higher than most homegrowns because he got signed out of college as a freshman. So there's a high demand there. And you can look, do the same thing at, at Thomas Roberts being a highly coveted homegrown at the time he signed versus Tanner, who was a little bit less highly coveted. And then you can see like the Dante Seeley hype versus guys like Edwin, for example, 
you know, or Pepe or even the guy that just signed Benny, who are basically guys that are just the minimum at the time they sign homegrown contract. And then some of them have escalated a little bit, but Benny obviously is brand new. So um, everyone's in tiers and you can see all the positions and how much they rate and kind of where they get paid. You know, Ryan is an outside back is one of the lowest of the starters. And so Dallas has these salary slots and position arguments that they make with these players. Like, are you a starter or are you not? You know, you're going to get paid this or that by where you play on the field and how, whether you're a starter or not. So you can read a lot into these numbers. All right. So, Steve, I'm really fascinated since, you, again, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that this is what you've been spending the better part of your day on. Where does Dallas grade out in comparison to other teams and how they've balanced their salary cap or how they pay their players? You know, outside of Hara, I kind of like it. Um, I mean... Matt Hedges as your as your second second highest paid player, great. Um, Acosta is your DP. Okay, he's he's gonna stay a DP because of the transfer fee that they paid for him. You see that seven hundred thousand. Some people might think, oh, we can buy that down if we want to get a third and then and then a fourth DP. Uh, that's actually not the case because I think they paid three million for him at the begin uh, when they when they brought him in and that. That gets prorated towards the cap number to determine whether you could get below the DP range. Uh, so I, I don't think he, he's going he's gonna to be able to avoid DP status uh, throughout this contract. But, um, and side note, thank you, Brian Acosta, for quitting shooting so darn much. <laughs> Uh, he's actually looking like he's he's worth having a, he's he's worth that that kind of money if he keeps this up and and stays disciplined um, and and isn't just you know pulling a Baggio and and tossing it in the stands all the time. That's not don't, entirely don't, fair to Baggio, don't jinx but... it. Don't jinx, don't jinx it, Steve. All right, it's going yeah. it's going pretty good so far. It, well, um, any other any other particular highlights or lowlights out of the different salary stuff that got dumped today by the Players Association? Well, I mean, I've seen since. FC Cincinnati's just a joke. <laughs> They've got more millionaires than anybody and hardly anything to show for it. Um, I, what, what surprised me most about the, uh, the 2021 dump overall is that the overall payrolls of the teams are so much closer than they ever were before. Mm. Like, you've only got one team that is less than half of the most expensive payroll team uh, in the league. Um and usually you've got, you know, a few big spenders and then a huge drop-off. But it's a much more gradual descent as you go through the, through the league right now, which is, you know, kind of refreshing. Uh, we don't have, and, and of course, everybody wants to talk about the haves and the have-nots. And um, after Alexi Lawless retweeted me this morning, the comments got much dumber. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, but you know, I'm sure that's just naturally what happens when, when he inserts himself in any way. But, uh, the, uh, so, so right now we've got Miami paying almost 18 million for their roster. And the other end of, of it is Vancouver at 8.7. And yeah, that's a big difference. But it's, if you look at the, the, the graph, it's such a gradual step down the whole way. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a lot of previous seasons, that highest spending club is doubling the majority of the league. Um, it's just a very different world now in how all of the all of the teams are being somewhat aggressive on some level. And if Dallas had been um, you know sensible and gotten Hara for a 
for a number that made sense, they'd be further down the list, but they'd be a better team probably because they wouldn't feel so compelled to keep them on the field so darn much. Or, you know, if they had gone out and spent the same amount of money on a really good player, that would have been even better. But, um, I, yeah, that, that's that been the most striking thing to me. We're, we're now at a point where um, 9% of MLS players are making over a million dollars. You go back a decade, and that's like 1%, 2%. Um, and, uh, and when they started releasing these things, almost 70% of of players were making less than a hundred thousand. Now it's only 30% of players on, on that kind of salary. Um, so it's gotten, uh, you know, so much healthier. I, I think I remember back in the, back in 2007, 2008, somebody described it as, well, we've got major league and minor league in the same roster. You know, that's why these guys are making $13,000. They're actually kind of the, the minor league guys that are trying to earn their way up into the first team, even though they're on the roster. Um, you know, we're, we're well past that kind of paradigm and everybody's making a, a living wage, um, which is quite refreshing. So Dan, one of the things that I thought was interesting in the numbers and you brought it up in your article today and, and I don't know if you'll know the answer, but maybe Steve does is the stunning amount of money, uh, that Dallas pays specifically to homegrowns. It's, it's almost as much as they pay Hara for what is it like 11 mm. different players? Uh, 13 uh, with uh, Nicky Hernandez and Colin Smith left out. Uh, but yeah, a uh, little over two and a half million. Uh, I mean, I'd love to see, you know, what the percentage spend of uh, all the rosters are for home grounds. That'd be a, a hell of a deep dive. But Dallas keeping close to a quarter of the... Uh, at least a base salary. Uh, obviously propped up by Sylvania, uh, by uh, Jesus is five fifty and and Paxton mm-hmm. six hundred grand. Yeah, that was that was fascinating. Steve, does anybody else come even close to that in terms of how much they pay homegrowns? I don't know. Uh, like like Dan said, it would be a bit of a deep dive because um, uh, the salary data is just name, club, position, numbers. So I uh, I, I don't okay. have. Uh, homegrown status is part of the data in the first place. The uh, guys on um, uh, American Soccer Analysis, um, their their uh, uh, analysis evolved on Twitter. Um, they're doing some work right now to try to join these data to other data, and so that might make uh, that kind of approach easier. But you know, just given the amount of homegrowns, it seems pretty unlikely to me that others are going to be paying anywhere near this much especially if you don't count guys who started homegrown and then hopped around the league you know they they, they don't really count to, towards um towards a, an overall homegrown salary i don't think in my mind but um no it's it's got to be that the dallas is paying more for for the homegrowns than anybody else i do want to make one other note because 2020 just kind of got slipped in there and nobody you know was looking at it in the season um, Tiago Santos was making 840,000 last year. Right. Um, you know, th- that's, that's something that, you know, it's not natural to, to dwell on right now cause he was here and gone, but, um, at, at least I'll give the, the front office kudos for getting something for him on, on the other end of that. I mean, uh, they, they paid it, they paid some to get him. They, they paid him while he was here, but 
it's it wasn't a wash. They actually made some money back on it, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, age. real quick question about that. So if Dallas is paying uh, ten point seven million for their salary in twenty twenty one, I haven't seen it anywhere else. What was their salary number last year? Twenty twenty it was uh twelve point four. So it dropped two million dollars almost from twenty twenty to twenty. Right, and because because uh, Rito was making a million, Tiago mm-hmm. Santos was making eight forty, uh C- Santiago Mosquero was making six forty, another one mm-hmm. of them. Glad to see the other side. Uh, Pablo Aranguiz was in there. That was listed at five twenty, but he was out on loan the whole time. So that Fafa. you know, um, Fafo was at four thirty. Uh, Barrios was at five sixty. So that's quite a quite a few half yeah. a million plus guys for Fafa being near that. So that, if Dallas uh, that left if, in the off season. if Dallas is set, I think I counted this correctly, seventeenth. Uh, in the league in salary this year, what what place were they at twelve point four in twenty twenty? Do you know off the top of in your head? In twenty twenty, it would have been, um, and uh, if you go to the, the Tableau dashboard, if you click in the bottom corner on one of the bar charts, it changes it the main graphic oh. to to the next year. So let's see towards the Sorry. middle. So let me count it off. TikTok, you're listening to 13th. live coverage of Steve Fenn <laughs> counting on the podcast. They 13th. were thirteenth. So we okay, were right, right. At, Right at the middle. All right. My only other note here, because I know, Steve, we only have you for a, a limited amount of time, is as I'm looking at your graph. By the way, these Tableau graphs are amazing because they uh, make it so much easier for simpletons like me to to understand the numbers. I'm really blown away at how far Seattle has fallen down the list in total compensation. Because if you had asked me prior to today, I would have assumed Seattle was still somewhere right up there with Toronto and, and, and the Galaxy. But now they're literally closer to Dallas than they are the top of the list. Well, again, keep in, mo- keep in mind that where they fall on the list isn't quite as important. MLS has always been more about how smartly you spend your money than how much money you spend. I mean... We all, we all want to talk about Beckham and about the others that came in as hugely, as hugely expensive players, but especially Beckham, most of that money is going towards marketing. Um, and, and yes, he helped a, a great deal on the field, but um, the way that the, the salary cap is structured, you have to make some level of sacrifice, even when you get a big salary cap discount on a DP by investing a lot of money into the in these other places Hmm. and so you know i've i've looked at correlations between total payrolls and points per game in regular season they're almost nothing um you you have to be smarter in how you spend your money uh not just throw money at the problem and unfortunately dan hunt has managed to both throw money at the problem in a stupid way and be towards the and, and be towards the lower half of the uh, of the list of teams, but Seattle has got some real bargains in there, even when they are spending a fair amount of money. So you know, we already mentioned that uh, <laughs> that Nico Ladero is cheaper than Franco Hara, hmm. but you go further down the list, Rui Diaz is cheaper than that. Right, Rui Diaz is only is only making two point one. A few years ago in MLS, you'd th- you'd you know you think about two point one as an exorbitant contract, but um, you know MLS inflation is far outpacing inflation of the American dollar. 
and um, and it's just a very different world now. And Seattle is hitting on these guys that are not hugely breaking the bank, and and getting real difference makers out of it. I think uh, just to kind of jump off the idea of of guys that uh, you know are, are bargains and you know smart trades and and bad spending. Uh, we sometimes we'll talk about escalators. Uh, you know, being a, a big uh, incentive for trades. Uh, you know, you can look at like Maxi Arita for Houston. He's making one point two million now, which is absurd. And that that was you know the the real uh, prime reason to to get rid of him to a, a Montreal originally. One thing did pop up uh, pop out for me today was uh, Fafa Pico. When he signed, you know, we only had the twenty nineteen uh, salary uh, guide, mm-hmm. and the notion was great. He made one hundred and seventy four grand. That's a bargain. His escalator was two uh, two hundred and seventy thousand dollar raise to get him to uh, four hundred and thirty grand. He's now a half million dollar player. Like you can see with that Barrios, Mosquera, everyone else, you know how these how these escalations in the salary really dictated how. FC Dallas wanted to dump that salary and you know get away from that twelve million number for really not a whole lot of production to get down to at least uh, the ten point seven for. I mean, if even if uh, O'Brien and uh, Vargas don't necessarily pan out as well as we'd like them to, really the same value for money. So wait, just for dummies like me, escalator is just the difference from year from season to season and how much they get paid, correct? Or is it some actual triggering thing? Yes, um, it can be both. Know, yeah. So you know, for example, uh, Paxton's uh, contract had him get a hundred thousand dollar a raise this year, and when uh, when Buzz initially started talking about the contract, he said. You know, you average it out to. I think he said he it averages out to six hundred grand. So next year it'll go up again. You know, maybe seven hundred thousand, and and then that keeps that six hundred thousand average across the first three years. Yeah, it can be a raise that's built into the structure. It can often, when you have a, a option years, option option years often jump because it's like if you like me enough to keep me, you got to pay me more. And then also, it can raises can be triggered by things like appearances or. Um, goals scored, in addition to bonuses, that they can trigger raises too. It just depends how the contract's structured and how much the players willing to bet on themselves. Like Brian Reynolds, for example, his contract had um, huge bonuses and escalators based on uh, percentage of starts because they weren't 100% believing in him when they gave him the new contract. So it just depends on the player. I just want to make a couple other quick points before, um, before I've got to go. Uh, so um, I was looking at some of the underlying numbers beyond the salaries, and um, Obreon had some really good performance for Rio Negro before he joined FC Dallas. Um, some of those numbers look a little better than the, than they actually are because he had a lot of PKs. Um, so he scored 13 goals for them in that season, but five of them were from the spot. But he was producing uh, an assist or two as well. And he was um, producing quite a few goals from from the run of play anyway. So there's some decent underlying numbers on on Obreon coming in. Um, although I, I also kind of suspect that Dan, like with Hara, probably look. You know, analysis teaches us to look at uh, to figure out what the wrong the wrong numbers to look at are and try to find something better. So raw goal counts are going to get skewed by the PKs, which are a different skill than scoring from the run of play. And so Hara looked much better when you didn't remember that all of it was coming from the spot. 
Obreon looks better in the same way, but he had better underlying numbers in terms of his production. Um, and so I'm, I'm more optimistic on, on Obreon going forward. Um, but I also, it, it feels to me at this point that to get consistent offensive production, help us, Ricardo Pepe, you're our only hope. Like, it's, it's got to come from within. I, 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 I just don't have faith in the front office anymore to, to go get the deal done. I mean, they've hit lightning in the bottle a couple of times with Castillo and Diaz back in the day. But looking at the roster right now, we need the youngster to come in and at the very least motivate Hara to do what he can and, and then take over for him and, and, and show the old guy the door. I yeah I don't think you're going to get any disagreement from the rest of us. The last thing I wanted to ask you real quick about the overall salary dump. Just as I again look at your tableau and the graphics, am I am, is it just too simplistic for me to say that Philadelphia looks like their front office has handled their salary situation better than anybody else in the league, and it's not even close? I'm a little biased because I've actually had some conversations with folks in that front office at times. Uh, mm-hmm. I've not consulted to them directly, but. Um, they, I've, I've been impressed with what they've said to me about their approach to things and they have actual mathematicians on the staff who seem to be doing a really good job of, uh, of, um, of salary cap work. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think the Philly is, is doing a good job. Um, I'm, I don't know what to make of Austin yet. Um, you gotta remember they're starting out their season entirely on the road and it, hasn't been hasn't been bad results but their underlying numbers aren't great we'll see what happens with them going forward but yeah uh, uh, looking at the bottom of it Philly, philly's impressive um, like and i'm always and, and san jose as well um i think is is and and you know it, it but it's so hard to say based on what we're seeing on the field only a, a couple of games into the season but yeah philly, philly does stand out as they built a good roster for cheap. I think Austin deserves credit for getting Pulisic on 64K. That's a monumental achievement. <laughs> had to take the fake Pulisic, yeah. but you got a Pulisic on your roster on the yeah. cheap. Huge. Definitely. How do we get uh, the fake horror? <laughs> Is there another one? That would be. Yeah. Uh, excellent. All right. Well, Steve, anybody got any questions for Steve before we let him go? Uh, no question. I just love these tableaus. I think you do an amazing job on them, Steve, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was fun. Yeah, Steve, thank you, and uh, you're welcome back any old time, all right? Appreciate it. Take care. Good evening. All right, when we come back with part two, we'll talk about kissing your sister. Third degree, the third degree nail podcast. 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 Hey everybody, it's Buzz. Just wanted to give another quick thanks to Steve Finn for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed that or any of the rest of the work we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash third degree. We'd love the support. Now it's time to get back on with the podcast in part two. Okie dokie, welcome back to part two of this uh, new edited version of the podcast. we got so much to talk about. Buzz, did you say this is episode number one? 10? 110, yeah, 110. Look at us go. Which will then take us to the dump of a game between FC Dallas and Houston, which was a mighty messy 
sister kissing fest of a draw. And I'm mostly concerned to hear you guys' reaction because my reaction is I think that this was far more concerning of a result than the win against Portland was encouraging. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to quite go that far, but it is a, it was a terrible game. Part of it, I think, is that, and th- this is not from just an SC Dallas perspective. I'm talking about just watching it. Oh, yeah. Terrible game. <laughs> Boring game. People I know on both sides of this fence, Houston and Dallas, said terrible game. Uh, for me, the downsides are uh, the, the hype of the Portland game, having had Pepe start and things looking so much better, to then go back to Hara. I don't, I don't get it. You know, the, the thing becomes dour and doesn't work instantly. You know, Houston also plays, chose to play three holding mids. Basically they're going with a very stingy sort of lineup because they don't have a prolific goal scoring team either. Cause they've got guys that Dallas rejected like Uriti and Fafa not scoring. And then their best player posture who's pasture who's come from the USL is was hurt. So they moved memo up to the wing, but um, not, not a great game. Um, you know, there are some positives we can talk about. Um, for example, 84% of the shots came in the box for Dallas. That's a remarkable uh, job in terms of getting good opportunities. Now, maybe they're waiting too long, perhaps, but you know, like that positive, it's just it, it was a regression compared to Portland. And that certainly is worrying um, because you're talking about a, a rival game against a team that you're going to be battling for that last playoff spot and you went out flat. And didn't have much spirit or much anger or much. It was almost like a friendly, right? Is that what he felt like to me? I just, you know, uh, and, and I don't know. I just, for the fourth game of the season, it looked like the first game of the preseason. There were so many bad passes and missed passes and poor first touches. And Dan, I, the thing that I came away with uh, from the game was, is they just, Dallas just didn't look like a well-coached team that day um yeah no i think that's that's fair uh i was a little bit concerned towards the end because you know you've got houston are pulling memo rodriguez fafa pico they're pulling their they're dangerous players um <clears throat> you know and, and definitely invisibly settling for the draw lucci's making attacking substitutions and as my cat is destroying stuff um Lucci's making attacking substitutions, and yet the the play is regressing. They're getting more defensive. They're getting, you know, it was it was very it was like you say it's preseason. It's two teams that were very happy for a point. Um, I think the part that worried me most wasn't even the game itself. It was afterwards. Uh, you know, you've got Tab Ramos talking about he was disappointed. Um, you know, with the, with the game. You've got Lucci talking up all the positives like it's a win. And it was only really until Paxton comes on and, you know, we know Paxton, he doesn't beat around the bush. He speaks his mind and was like, yeah, that was crap. <laughs> you I want to one... hear the coach sort of say that was unacceptable. That, uh, you know, the only time you play your biggest rival, a team you're going to be battling out for a playoff spot with at home should be at three points every time. But isn't that a reflection of a of a guy who has, you know, in Lucci's situation where he really is desperate to retain some level of relationship with his players and he just can't afford to do anything verbally that to to lose the ship. 
and and that's a reflection of him just refusing to throw players under the bus. I mean, it, that all of those little pieces come to get make that up, right? You don't have. You mean you don't have to throw players under the bus uh, to say it was a bad performance. You'd have to be Jose Mourinho picking out individuals. You can say, as a team, we win. As a team, we lose. As a team, we were crap today, and gifted a, an inferior team a point. I do wonder from time to time, uh, and this is probably the nature of Luching having being young. You know, we've pointed out that that was a problem that he was inexperienced. A lot of times, veteran coaches are very aloof from the team. They're very separated from the team. You even hear of some coaches that don't run training. They stand mm-hmm. on the side. Oh, yeah. And yeah. just watch. Lucci is very involved in running training. Now, he lets the other coaches run like the first drill or two. But then once you get into the team thing, he's very, very involved, very talkative. I mean, you hear him on the sideline when the same's empty, right? He's He maintains these very close relationships with players. I do wonder at times if it's almost a detriment to him that he needs some aloofness. You know, we saw the way, for example, Frank O'Hara reacted, you know, with the disrespect last year. You know, like that, that should never happen if your coach has enough respect from the players. You know, so I begin to wonder sometimes what Lucci gets, you know, very preachy like he does if people don't tune him out. If he's very chummy like he is and very likable like he is and wants to be friends with everybody like he seems to be, you know, does that mean guys tune him out at some point? Do you need to be more like Bruce Arena or Bob Bradley and be an ass occasionally or Peter Vermees and be an ass occasionally and be mean occasionally to some of your players? And I don't know that I've ever seen Lucci be mean to a player. There are some players that need mean coaches, mm-hmm. you know, and I wonder. Can I, Oscar Perea did the most perfect example of what you're saying at a practice I was at. Um, Kellen Acosta, they were practicing corners, and Kellen Acosta, like, smashed three straight attempts into the first man. Um, Oscar bitched him out in front of everyone, put the ball on the corner arc, delivered a pinpoint perfect corner, and then hugged him and said, all right, that's how it's done. (laughs) Now, I will admit that I have seen Lucci throw somebody out of practice and tell him to go sit. I, I did see that one time. So he will, granted, it was Tanner, who's a kid, but, you know, I, I, I do wonder if sometimes this is a factor. You know, yeah. it's, hard to, it's hard to chew a guy out when you're trying, when everyone's in this huggy, we're fall family stuff that Lucci does, you know. That's, that's what I liked about Oscar's delivery. He would, we've all had Oscar Perea death stare. And, you know, <laughs> and he hugs it out with people as well. You know, he knows when to drop a guy on his ass and when to pick him up. And it's maybe that balance hasn't come quite yet with coming through the academy and, and everything else. Well, you know, it was funny because I was watching the, the Atlanta game and they did a, a shot of Josh Wolf on the sideline. Now, Josh is a relatively um, uh, inexperienced head coach. This is kind of his first, I think this is his first head coaching gig, at least the major league soccer level, obviously. But I, I thought it was interesting that he... And um, Lucci are very similar in their just constant narration of the game. And then you turn on uh, Bruce Arena or Bob Bradley or any of these other guys um, uh, that just kind of stand there and watch the game and they kind of interject as needed. And I, and I think that is very reflective of just the quality of, you know, of the experience and the quality of that particular manager that is reflective in the team um, these days. 
Well, sometimes the team can be young too and need more of that stuff. But I think back to watching managers at um, all kinds of levels. Uh, I remember Colin and always had this little notepad in his hand and he'd be writing down notes, you know, during the game that he wanted to then work on that week or go over in the week. And he wasn't necessarily like, I'm going to get up right this minute and try and right. correct somebody mid game. Now he would get up and yell at people and don't get me wrong, but at the same time, he's taken a lot of that stuff. He wanted to make sure he got it down, you know, so rather than try and correct somebody's, you know, concepts and, the, and there's a difference between that. Hey, remember what we worked on this week? Keep, let's do this thing we worked on and, and saying like trying to coach someone up in the game. Those are two different things completely. And that's my complaint with Lucci is like, don't, don't coach somebody up in the game, coach them up in training in the game, remind them of the tactics. Hey, don't forget, we want you higher here, you know, or mm-hmm. don't forget, we're going to go at this guy or, or shift formations. Now that stuff's all welcome. It's the, it's the, it's the teaching you're in a game that I think is not, that's the extra that Lucci's doing that uh, he should not be doing. But again, uh, experience, you know, it comes back to this with this guy, you know, as much as there's things to admire about him, the inexperience is a massive, massive one. It's yeah. So micromanagement in a way. Yeah. So back to the Houston game in particular, you know, the, the offense just looked really turgid. Uh, and, and one of the things that so far after four games of the season that dawned on me that I, I can't quite figure out in my head, and I don't know if you guys have thought of this too, is it, it amazes me that Brian Acosta can have improved his game so much that we've all changed our impression of him, yet this team looks absolutely no different or any any more dangerous than it did last season when he was playing like crap. Yeah, it's it's fr- frankly the two of the best players on the team other than, other than Brisson until this game have been McCarte and Acosta and yet they can't find the players up front at a consistent enough basis and I still can't help but feel like the the remember last year how much we talked about how important outside backs were in this team. And right now, you're only getting one side of that. You're only getting Ryan when he's on the left. When he's on the right, you're not getting either one. When he's on the left, at least you're getting the left. So you're only getting either none or half of that width and that necessary build up the outside to allow you these other options. Um, and that for me, that's one of the big disconnects that's happening. The other is um, a lot of the plays going through Freddie Vargas. And as much as we think he has a potential right now, he, he's not producing what he did in the spring. The payoff's not there. And, of course, the last one is for me, again, Frank O'Hara, who's playing as a false nine and doesn't have the fitness or the pace to get back. The key to a false nine is by dropping off, you're creating spaces. Either you or your wingers have to exploit that space. And Hara is not doing it. He doesn't have the fitness for it or the speed for it anymore. So it does not working, in my opinion. And until you change that guy out, this offense is going to suck. Okay, that's a really good point uh, that I wanted I wanted to dig into, which is it's very clear to me, and I think to everybody else, Frank O'Hara is playing the number nine position very differently than Ricardo Pepe does. And what I can't figure out is, is that Frank O'Hara making the decision to play it as a false nine and soak back into the midfield? and Or is Pepe being told by Lucci to play it differently and you know, play it more traditionally, like getting in behind defenses, or is it, or is it some other disconnect between Har and the coach? Well, my assumption, and I've never gotten a chance to ask Lucy this because we don't get one on one with him anymore. My assumption is that they don't want to turn Pepe into something he's not, and what he is is a pure high striker. So they don't want to make him do something different. Um, and then Hara 
you know, this deep in his career, he is what he is. You're not going to turn him into something different. So it's, it's, I think it's a question of they don't want to have those guys play differently. Now, Jesus, we want to know when Jesus comes back, he gets paid starter money, remember? So he's a more legitimate in everyone's eyes associated with the team, apparently, competition to be a real starter. And he also plays false nine-ish. So it'll be interesting to see when he's integrated in, does Lucci ask him to play like Pepe or is he going to play false nine like he tends to do, like he does with the national team? He'll be much more effective at it than Hara is because he has the explosive burst to be able to exploit that space that Hara does not. So I mean, I'm optimistic that Jesus is going to have a really good season when he comes back. But, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath either, but I feel positive about that idea. All right. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you, are the uh, stock prices of Obreon and Vargas falling? They're a little bit like Dogecoin, right? We think they're heading up and suddenly they start heading a bit down and we're like, what? What even what even affects this? Why is this happening? Probably well, I, the, the worst uh, analogy you're going to have today, right? Uh, no, <laughs> you can never go wrong with a Dogecoin reference. I, I, the thing is, is I, I, at least for me, I haven't yet quite figured out what Obreon is good at. Um, even the goal he scored in the game was kind of wonky. Um, and for all the excitement and kind of bravado that I thought Vargas had, we talked about body language and everything. I have to be honest and say, I don't yet think I've seen him do anything of significance or super high value um, or create a really incredibly dangerous chance that I remember off the top of my head in these four games yet. And I, and I, you know, I do wonder if this is one of those deals where it's just going to take a lot of time to really flesh out if these guys are any good. Well, the thing, the thing is, is that Vargas did good things in the spring when he was facing the defenses that weren't as good. And obviously when you get to the regular season, things get tougher, the opponents get tougher, you know, so it's not necessarily a surprise that he dropped off a little bit. Hopefully we see enough in him that we think he'll find himself. I think once he gets a game or two off and there's more competition there. I think that'll push him a little bit. And then maybe he'll get some late game appearances that might get him to unsettle some people. Obreon, I'm actually fine with. I, he looks exactly like I expected. He's scoring basically the exact amount I expected. He's exploiting teams the exact way I expected. I mean, I didn't have any expectations that we weren't going to get like early O'Brien, um, early Barrios or early Castillo where it was a little rough, but the pace is still really dangerous and the pace catches people off of guards, and he's good for a goal every second or third game. I mean, that's basically what I thought we were going to get. So He just feels like such a disconnected piece of the whole thing to me, though. Well, there's absolutely a disconnect in terms of the team concept. Like, he and when, when Hollingshead was on the right, they had major problems getting on the same page. And he still does that. Like, they haven't all been together enough that he'll make a run and not get the ball. And, be, and he, he does a little more gesturing than I would prefer um, but he makes runs and doesn't get it, or the guy thinks he's going to make a run and passes it, and he doesn't do the run. But right. those things will get better with time. The pure stuff that's there, I think, is perfectly fine as it is, and as things improve, he'll only get better. He's already playing to the expectations I had, so um, if they get more out of him than what they're getting, that's going to be great. I mean, he's not the problem in the front three. It's the other two that are the problem. Hmm. All right, well, let's go to the uh, back line, and we obviously didn't have hedges in this particular game. We got M- Martinez and Brisson, and after a, a, a host of weeks of us uh, uh, kind of like begrudgingly going, oh, you know, Brisson's actually praying, playing pretty well, uh, he had a bit of a flat game. Boy, did he ever. Golly, that was definitely his worst game of the year. I mean, um, with hedges back, I would imagine that there'll be a pretty tight competition there to see if Brisson can keep that spot. I, I don't imagine he will. 
Um, it was a rough outing. You know, I, I joked that maybe he read his own press, us talking about how good he was playing because he sure came back to earth in a big time hurry on that one. I should have been sent off as well. Yeah, frankly. All right, and then the most confusing thing happened in this game, and I don't know, I, I, and I'm not I'm exaggerating when I say this, this may be one of the most confusing in-game decisions I've seen in the history of this club when uh, trying to, I think, go for a win, Lucci decides to sub in the new Hungarian guy that hasn't even been with the club for 48 hours, barely practiced with his teammates. He has Thomas Roberts floating around somewhere, not on the bench. And this guy goes out there and looks about as lost as a kid in a, an amusement park missing his parents. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that Lucci's a Eurosnob. That's what that's what it looked like to me. It's like they signed a player for Europe. Oh damn, get that guy in the game. I mean, he's been there. Put me in the game next. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Dan, you're up. I mean, oh, look, shit. the guy the guy had trained on Wednesday. I watched him jog around the field, and everyone said, "Yay, welcome to the team." Thursday and Friday, apparently, he trained. Friday, if you've ever been on Friday, Friday is walk around. There is no training or drilling on Fridays. You stand on the field and you kind of jog at like seventy five percent. So this idea that he watched video ahead of time and then those two days, one day training and one day walk around was enough to integrate you in the team is absolutely asinine. There is no way that that guy was ready to play team conceptually with this team. And I watched a guy runner out there with no idea how to play with his teammates. I watched dudes, Paxson in particular, literally look at him 30 yards wide open, <laughs> hesitate, and then change his mind and turn back into the defense and not pass him the ball. And I know it happened two or three other times that I remember for sure. And Paxson was the one that I can remember who did it. Um, no offense to Paxson because Paxson looks better and better every game. And we know how good that kid is. So the point is like Thomas Roberts on Wednesday in training. Now it was one day I saw him, but he looked as good in training as he's ever looked. That kid is on fire right now. And they left him off the bench to put Sean on the bench. Now, I, so I could kind of buy it if you'd have had an extra spot and didn't have a guy that wasn't playing out of his mind. Back in the old day, you only had four subs or whatever. And you were like, okay, if I'm up four to nothing, then I'll put him in and let him jog around or whatever. But the idea to force him in and perhaps have thrown away a chance to try and get this game back, because that's what it looked like to me. It looked like you are playing without a man. That's just one of the most ridiculous subs I've ever seen. And I don't care what anybody at the club tells me. It's a ridiculous sub. The guy should not have even been on the bench at all because they were left with basically only, other than Paxson, they basically had Emma Tuomasi, was your only attacking player available. And he's not even an attacking player anymore. He's a right back now. So I would have rather seen him than shown eight times a week in that particular situation. Stupid uh, sub, horrible right. sub. Okay, so now I'm going to go into conspiracy theorist mode because this also ties into the Haro over Pepe thing that we've talked about. Uh, is there, is it legitimate to wonder that Sean's injection into this game was purely an internal politics thing and not necessarily uh, Lucci's decision? Yeah, unfortunately, this is a quote-unquote big investment player. This is a guy that came from the IX system, right? This is a guy that's been blah, blah, national team, this, that, whatever. It's a hundred percent to me. This is a hundred percent. Here's the brand new big hype guy. We've got, we're going to put him in as fast as possible. Right, I don't think I can. Has anybody listening to this podcast even heard of this dude prior to him signing with the club? 
I never had for sure. Those ones from Hungary. Have you heard of him, Dan? You're the you're the uh, European fellow. No, I mean just you know some generic guy who was playing in the Hungarian league. It's kind of like uh, you know anyone from a obscure league. Well, that's why I joked that Lucci was a Euro snob because it's the only thing, only thing I can think of was like because he's from Europe, he must be really good. Let's put him in. Yeah, I was kind you of know. I was kind of confused after the game because I you know I asked him on the press conference like hey don't you think there's a bit of a risk a guy that you've only seen train for two days to you know in a in a position where you're trying to win an important game and he got real defensive about it said so, you know he's he's trained on his own all week he studied video before he came here he studied video now which doesn't help you gel with players at all. Um, and he's fit, this is good, his ball works good, and he showed us in that day that he joined us at a group, and then he kind of went off on a little tangent and said, you know, we did the same thing with Ricarte, we did the same thing with Frank O'Hara, neither of which are true, um, and that all mid-season transfers are the same way, and no, they're not, people don't step off a plane and train with a team one day, breaking the, the unwritten Wednesday rule and, and things like that, that was... Uh, that that was a special kind of crazy. Well, I would also I would also argue that even if in fact those were true statements, I, I don't think you had in those instances players uh, in waiting, homegrowns in particular, that were clearly ready to go. And I, and I'm just a, and based on what you've told me, Buzz, and uh, watching practice and what I've heard from other people who have watched practice, is that Thomas Roberts in particular is balling out right now and really deserves some time with this team. So not even to like stick that kid off the bench just to throw this guy on, you know, two days after he shows up, just really confuses me. I just don't understand what's going on. Yeah, Thomas looks right now as good as I've ever seen him look. And listen, everybody knows that I really like Thomas Roberts, so I'm sure there's some rose-tinted Thomas Roberts goggles on here. But I've had other people besides myself mention to me how great Thomas looks. And he's I've heard all spring that he's been great. And last week in particular, he looked phenomenal. He probably looked even better than Paxton did in training. And then he didn't even make the bench. I mean, I literally said to somebody that I was like, well, that is such a jerk move. Because remember, Thomas, twice now, he had a chance to go to Byron last year, and they said no, and then didn't play him. And now again, this winter, he was trying to take advantage and line some stuff up for himself and get a loan. And they talked him into staying again. And again, he's playing lights out and training. And again, they're leaving him off the bench. So I don't know what the kid's got to do to get in the game. Apparently, it's be from Europe, uh, as near as I can tell. This is one of the most asinine decisions in my book that Lucci has ever made. It's well, unbelievable. I, I would, I, and maybe somebody that listens to the pod will come up with something uh, more wackadoodle than this. But I, I literally, I thought about this since the game. I can't remember a more unusual substitution in the history of this club, even dating, dating back to the Dallas Burn days. That was more nonsensical than this particular sub. The way the game was situated in that moment, the scenario, the options, all of it, it just didn't make any sense. And it just reeked of politics and and everything other than and then trying to win a game. I mean, the guy doesn't even look that good, to be honest. You know, and uh, granted, tiny well, sample. And when he's been not, here two days. It's not fair no, to him. No, it's not. It's, you're not fair to him because I, I thought he was like, why in the world? This guy looks awful. There have been players that have come here that have literally spent a month trying to integrate and get in which the coach is like, okay, now you're ready to play. And this guy walked off the plane and played. I don't, it's not like he's a 28 year old prime of his career. He's like a 21 year old prospect. What are we doing? 
I don't understand this one at all. I mean, this is, I'm madder about this than I am about the stupid uh, horror contract, frankly. You can tell. Well, Sorry, I'm on my soapbox today. Good defensive work, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, was a, it was not a good result. It's one of those games that you worry will come back to haunt the team when it, uh, towards the end of the season uh, when it comes to uh, looking at where you are in the standings and where the, uh, you know, Houston is in the standings. And it also makes you wonder if, if uh, Dallas and Houston aren't actually the two worst teams in Texas based on how Austin is playing on the road, which is like the most awful thing, awful feeling, just terrible, terrible. All right, when we come back in part three, we will preview Dallas up in Minnesota. Hi everybody, it's Buzz again. Hope you're enjoying this segmented podcast. It got a bit long, so we decided to put little breaks in it. We hope you like what we're doing. We hope you like our podcast. Hope you like the website. If you do, give us a chance. Support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash third degree. Now let's uh, get back to the show. Welcome to part three of Third Degree, the podcast. Yes, it was so stuffed we had to break it up into three parts. All right, so Dallas coming off their smelly, awful, goofy draw against Houston now have to travel to Minnesota, which got their first win of the season on Tuesday night. And uh, I just want to throw out a stat for you guys because I was thinking about this. Lucci's away record. Lucci's away record since becoming head coach of this team is five wins. Well, five wins, six losses. I'm sorry, five wins, six draws, and 17 losses. A total of 21 out of a possible, possible 84 points. Wow. Not, not bueno. Yeah, I'm depressed now. Well, I, what I was thinking is, you know, for a league that is infamous for everybody having a really poor road record i mean this isn't necessarily uh unique in this league it 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 is actually pretty bad yeah that is pretty bad it reminds me of his record in may which was like oh and something coming into this may uh the problem right now is that dallas has played three or four at home and they don't have you know they have just five points so it's like usually the place they're really good they're not really good so it's hard to think that they're going to go on the road and be much better to be honest so what are we looking for when uh, they line up up in Minnesota on Saturday night? Well, here's the part of the show I think you're going to love. Um, Hedges is back. He's clear to play. He's good to go. You would have thought after the, after the last week's game um, that it would be an easy choice to set Brisson and put Hedges in. Um, I did not make it to train this week. I was working Wednesday. But I've talked to a couple people, and my understanding is that you're looking at a back three again. Oh. I know. Yeah. I have I have finger gun in my mouth. Yeah. So, you know, listen, I'm all in favor of getting Hedges back on the field. And other than last game, Brisson has been great. I get that. But remember, this Lucci's doing this formation, basically, we think, to get Brisson on the field and over somebody else. So here's Ooh. the next question. If you go back three, then who goes off and what changes? Now, ideally, of course, we would like to see a 3-5-2, two strikers and a 10. That way you have a third man in midfield. But that's not the formation we've been getting all this year. And so if it's going to be a back three, which is what I think it's going to be based on the information I got, you're still looking at a 3-4-3. So which one of the three midfielders comes off? is going to take Tessman off, right? 
Well, you would think because Tessman had a Tessman wasn't great against Houston. That's one of the ones we right. didn't talk about in the last segment. Right. Come on, but rem- you. Remember but, what uh, happened in San Jose? Who did he take off? Ricarte. He took off Ricarte. So my, you know, the, the what I'm getting and what I think is going to happen, and I could be wrong, but I think that he's going to sit Ricarte and play Tanner and Acosta as your double sixes in front of your back three. Cause you know, in the traditional back three, you need two kind of holders there. The reason you want three, five, two is then you still get that extra attacking number 10. You get a three man midfield. So Lucci's sticking with the double sixes or six, eight hybrids, whatever the hell you want to call them. So you're looking at basically the San Jose lineup. Now I don't think Hollingshead will go back on the right now because Nelson has not been great as a wing back and actually Majomo or Tuomasi both look better as a wing back to me than they do as fullbacks. So I think you'll still get Hollingshead left and one of those two guys, probably Manjoma, right? Because that actually fits into his game a little bit. Mm-hmm. So my assumption is then Tessman Acosta in front and Vargas Harb O'Brien up top. The only um, the two red flags there is I think um, you know will he, is is there so much pressure to play Sean that he actually starts him a week later over Vargas? I don't think Paxson's. I think Paxson's another week and a half away from being ready to start. Um, maybe two. So. Left wing is the question mark. And then does he stick with Hara? And I'm afraid the answer is going to be yes, that we've all seen the salary now. Pepe got the one game, but, you know, this is a road game. So Lucci goes into grind it mentality, right? Low block. Remember what Lucci does on the road. Sits deep, five across the back, basically. Grind it out. Old man, Hara. That's what I, that's what I think you're getting this weekend. As much as I hate all of that that I just told you because I don't like any of it. But that's what I think is going to happen. Dan, you have something positive to tell me, don't you? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, always, always count on you, Dan Crook, uh, to cheer uh, me Pax- up. Paxton said the other day that he's uh, not had a setback in almost five weeks. That's positive. Yeah, we didn't really talk about Pax's performance in the Houston game, and, and there were uh, flashes where you just started to feel like you were starting to see the the kid come back again yeah, wow I, it's that bad that we're talking about a crap game yeah i know <laughs> yeah look i mean every time you see him he looks a little bit better right he's pushing his fitness up every time you know still a couple more weeks away you know he's still it's gonna yeah. be a long season for him until he gets it all back 100 percent. you know yeah, i don't like, I, I don't mean to keep harping on the shown thing but that was the only good aspect of that insertion of the hungarian kid was that it pushed packs back into the middle of the field yeah, I think in the in the grand scheme of things, you know, Paxson's probably going to be the long term answer this season at left wing, just because Sean is as much as they're like they apparently are investing in him, quote unquote. It's like you're still talking about a younger kid, relatively speaking. He and Vargas are both, you know, 21, right? Sean's 21. I didn't lose my mind. So, you know, I, I think Paxson's probably the more likely guy to start the most games at left wing. But he's still not there yet. I don't. I don't mm. think you can count him as in the mix at this point. So it's going to be Vargas or Shown. I don't think. I mean, El Medcor looks great. He was the best player for North Texas. I don't think that gets you the start the next game. But um, you know, so it's basically those two guys. You know, can will they will they go with Shown over Vargas is the real thing. Yeah, I mean, Minnesota's been pretty crummy this year, and they got a one zero win last night. Uh, when they we're recording this on Thursday, they got it on uh, against Vancouver. But they play a five-man midfield, and I just remember Dallas continuously getting just run through 
uh, and you know, down, you know, lacking an extra guy in the midfield, and that just doesn't. I, I don't. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I and I I still think it's all tied to the sale of Santos, and them just feeling like they don't yeah. have a true defensive midfielder. Well, the, there's a lot of reports happening. There's even a report of that guy that Dallas was targeting that apparently he refused to travel because his deal with Dallas is sewn up or something. So he's like, have to tell everybody what that's about. Oh, since yeah. probably nobody knows what you're talking. Sure, about. I I can't even remember his name. He's a guy that's been linked to. Um, Dallas and the reports coming out of South America talk about Zanata and the, the contract and like all this kind of stuff. And, that, and the, the deal is apparently so done that he refused to travel to Gremio, which is funny that it's Gremio. So like the team's now mad at him because he's out of contract in July. So the question will be, is Dallas going to wait till July to bring him in? Are they going to pay whatever it takes to get him a month early as they sit around and wait for this guy to show up? Now there's no evidence stateside. This is all coming from, South America, except for the report that's in Aldea. Now, Aldea has sources that say that these discussions are happening. That makes it much more legitimate than it would be if it was just South American. So there's 100% stuff here. I don't have anything I can add other than what you can read in the paper on somebody else's internet. I just think it's funny that the deal is so locked up, the dude refused to play against Gremio. So, I mean, that's the question. Do you wait for July for that guy, or do you keep doing what you're doing with Acosta trying to six Playing great, by the way, but he's not a six. Pure six, he's an eight. So, um, by the way, Sean is 20, not 21. That's my bad. But, you know, I, I don't know. You're, you're right, Peter. They got overrun in the midfield. If they continue to play 3-4-3, three, three, those two wings have to come back underneath the striker. But Har is a false nine, and Obreon plays wing wide and high. Not right. Vargas plays it right to play that way, but he can't do it by himself, and he doesn't come in and park there like a ten. You know, it's it doesn't really work. It's a mess. Yeah, the guy that we were talking about is uh, Fusundo Quinong, uh, who plays at Lan- uh, Lanus or Lanus. Yeah, thank uh, and, you. Don. And he is uh, 28 years old. Uh, he is a defensive midfielder. He's he's Argentinian, um, and uh, he's played on the Argentinians U17s. I guess at one point, I'm just kind of going through some of his information here. Uh, yeah. And there is just rumors that there's a deal pending, and and there was something on Twitter today that he refused to travel for a game against Gremio uh, in uh, the Copa in one of the cup tournaments because he's he's getting ready to come to Dallas. So yeah, that, he's, that, he's actually refusing to play, period, until his, oh, really? uh, until his contract runs out at the end of June. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, that's being widely reported, and the team's apparently really mad at him. So there's obviously enough concrete stuff there that something is happening. You know, hopefully it actually is definitely Dallas because they can really use the six, you know, because uh, Surreal is not ready yet. Right. And Acosta's not a six. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see because that'll change a whole lot of stuff. I just, you know... It feels like we're in this grinded out mode here with this team until they can get all the pieces ready. And one of those pieces is it's apparently going to be a six. One of those pieces is probably Jesus Ferrer being healthy. Is one of them somebody learning how to play left wing, Paxton getting healthy? Or are we just waiting around for all these things to happen? You got to sort out right back, too. That's the other thing you got to sort out. So there's lots of things that could turn the season around for this team. If like five or six of them happen, the team could get going in the right direction. I mean, it's a lot. You got left wing, you got nine, you got six, you got right back, and maybe Jimmy Mountain needs to come back a keeper. So that's five. Well, that, that's a, you know, that's a lot. Yeah, I had this. I had this question the other day. Uh, if Oberon went down with an injury, who plays right wing? Like, who's the backup at that position on this team? Well, on paper, it's Dante Seeley. That's who subs in. But probably, if he had to start somebody, it would be, be Paxton. 
right? This minute. Who, who, you who can't. really, it, like, he's just, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't start Paxton right now, I don't think, but. No, 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 no. I just, yeah. I just fundamentally, like, do they have a backup right wing on this team? And I'm not sure that they do. Well, like I say, Dante Sealy at the 80th minute Dante Sealy. If you had to start somebody there, it wouldn't be Dante Sealy. It would be somebody else. They'd have to take somebody and play them out of position to play the role is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Pepe could I mean, be Pepe. Could be Jesus. Ema could do it. Yeah, Ema could do it for sure. I mean, you could make the case right now no one's capable of starting at left wing for 90 minutes <laughs> the way Vargas is playing lately. All right. Now, uh, in the in the crayon run written run sheet, oh, no. and, I'm just, and I'm thinking this is maybe just out of the anger that you had over the substitution of Sean in the uh, Houston game, it actually says here in almost like angry murder killer letters, <laughs> it says, does Lucci actually effing start Sean question mark skull and crossbones skull and crossbones knife with blood on the end of it? Well, that goes back to the left wing spot problem you know i mean it's they threw him in when he wasn't ready so why not start him when he's not ready you know if there's a lot of pressure to play this kid and vargas hasn't been great you know if, if he's a more traditional wing and not a not a false wing like vargas is you know would he bounce obreon more well except you don't want that because you're playing three four three but that doesn't mean that's not what they're going to do yeah i just wouldn't you know when you're going to sub a guy in who's not ready why not start a guy who's not ready i mean what's the difference right put him in so, Dan, going to Minnesota, a team that's really struggled, but coming off a first win, but it's also a road game, we're going to get a pretty decent sense of where Dallas is after five games uh, in, in this scenario. This is like a really good test for this team to tell us if they've actually got something. I mean, I wouldn't even uh, count the uh, the win. It was a 1-0 win, win against Vancouver. That's like beating Portland's B team 4-1. Um, I mean, it's it's another winnable game. Uh, it's a winnable game on the road. That's That in itself is, you know, an indicator of how the season's going to go if, if they can start to capitalize on those moments uh, because they sure didn't at home at uh, the weekend. Okay, well, let me uh, then I'll ask you this question, Dan. Four games into the season, is this team better or worse or about where you thought they'd be at this point? Uh, they're behind. And what in particular are they behind on? There's no cohesiveness. Um, for, for year three of a, of a cycle, you want to see a team that, that can play the ball around comfortably, can transition well, and... There's no transition going forward. Uh, defensively, it's been great um, for the most part, but the, they're just struggling to get the ball into the th- into the front three. The front three are all over the place. You've got your two wingers trying to converge on on the penalty spot, and and your nine just getting in the way. Uh, it's just uh, it just yeah, it looks like a team that doesn't train. Almost. Buzz, your turn. Oh yeah, worse. Um, you know the last second sale of um, Thiago Santos. Lucci has been, in my eyes, he's been trying formational tactical adaptations to deal with the fact that he doesn't have a six. So that's hurting the team across the board. And then because Emma got hurt in the preseason, there was a big cluster at right back. Can we put Ryan over there? Now we're going with Munjoma over there. So that hurt both right back spots. And then we thought we had a left wing sorted, but we don't. So, um, you know, those those three things are really hurting the team the most. It makes them worse than 
we thought um, because it's hurting the defensive cohesion a little bit, the problems in the back and particularly the six being missing. Mm-hmm. So that the, the team's not as good defensively as it was. And the offensive rebuild so far looks like a bust. I'm not so sure that, I mean, O'Brien for Barrios to me is a wash at this point, but Hara's not doing squat and the left wing problem is definitely a problem at this point. Yeah. I don't want to give up on Vargas too soon. Yeah, I'm not giving up on Vargas either. You know, the kid's a younger guy. He's got potential, but right now he's not the answer at left wing. And no one right now is the answer at left wing. So that's a question mark and a problem has to be fixed. Well, maybe Lucci will uh, get his fifth win or uh, eight, six or seventh draw and not his 18th loss on the road. Maybe that that's what we have to look forward to. Uh, 7 p.m. up in Minnesota. The game is on uh, Channel 21. Uh, and I'm sure Mark and Steve will uh, kick ass and, and do their thing. Um, okay, the other news that we got this week was that the Gold Cup games have been announced. And we knew that Dallas was getting a, a ton of these games because we have so many awesome facilities. And that we were actually going to get international soccer back at the Cotton Bowl. And I'm super excited about that. Uh, and we found out the games are spread across uh, Toyota Stadium the uh, Death Star and the Cotton Bowl. Uh, I can't remember if it was you, Buzz, or Dan that wrote the article. What's the story on who gets what? Yeah, there's nine games in the Metroplex, unless I miscounted. Uh, Toyota Stadium has four games that are teams that are like, and uh, we need to play them somewhere. So they're at Toyota Stadium. Mexico has three games in Dallas, which is crazy. They they obviously have decided that Dallas is an epic mega center for Mexico because they're playing at the Cotton Bowl twice and AT&T once uh, in the opening round games. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, cause Mexico, probably all three of those games will draw some crazy numbers and they clearly went out of their way to set it up where Mexico is going to get those three games. I mean, cause even like on those even games game, goodness gracious on those days that they're playing, they're not playing two games at one venue. They're playing one, one place and one, the other place. So there's like a added logistical situation just to get Mexico these games in Dallas, which is crazy. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I bet the game at AT&T is huge, but I am willing yeah. to bet that the two games at the Cotton Bowl will actually out, uh, will have better attendance at the Cotton Bowl than AT&T just because of the, of the location yeah. and the fact that you don't have to pay the exorbitant parking prices you have to pay in Arlington to go to the Death Star. Well, it's also reachable for a lot more of the um, Mexican fans that are here in Dallas, you know, it, Anyway, I agree with you completely. Um, and then AT&T gets the quarterfinals. Two of the four quarterfinals are at AT&T. So those are the nine games. Um, it's going to be great to have international soccer played around here. Some of those games are going to be crazy. Some of them will have 5,000 people there or less. You know, if it's Caraco versus, you know, uh, Sadie. Yeah, Haiti, something like that. Because some of these games are like qualified winners are going to come up. It's going to be like small countries or in some of these spots. So, um, you know, nonetheless, it's all going to be pretty fun soccer. And it's cool yeah. to have it all around here. The I know, I saw... Is, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, sorry The question is that uh, that last group game, uh, Mexico-El Salvador at the Cotton Bowl, does that outdraw the Canelo fight at the Death Star last week? Whoa. Oh, uh, yeah. If the, if the Cotton Bowl currently is a 92,000-seat uh, facility, I believe, there is no doubt in my mind it will be sold out. Yeah, I would agree with if, that. If, in fact, they're allowing 100% attendance and there's no manipulation of that for COVID reasons... 
uh, El Salvador and Mexico at the Cotton Bowl. Are you kidding me? They haven't had a game like that here. A game that means something, too, right? It's not just a friendly. Yeah, Gold Cup. Uh, it, it will be insane in that place uh, that right. night. Yeah, I mean, the only challenge they have is kind of what we see with the women's national team coming here sometimes that having three games in in the space of a week can kind of, you know, water down the crowd a little bit. Well, I would think, is that the last of the Mexican games? That That is, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I bet people, if, if there is a game everybody's waiting for, it'll be that one. Yeah, that's on a Sunday, too. At uh, you know, because the, the other Cotton two Bowl. games Mexico play are minnows, right? Yeah, they they got Caraco on a Wednesday at the Cotton Bowl, and then before that at AT and T, they're going to have one of the preliminary winners um, at AT and T. Oh, so, man, I might have to put on my big boy pants and go to that thing because that that will be an atmosphere unlike we've seen in yeah. Dallas soccer and probably oh man, a really really long time. Now the quarters, my question is, can anybody calculate if there's any chance the U.S. will play a quarterfinal? Here at the Death Star? Oh, I didn't think to look at who might get in. Um, okay. Uh, that's a good question. Let's see. The Death Star games are 1C versus 2B. Oh, man. I don't have the groups in front of me. Yeah. All so, right. no, no. The answer to that is no, Peter. I did not. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the U.S. is uh, in Group B. So, oh, yeah. chance. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Because it's basically Group B versus Group C at the Cotton at the sorry AT and T on oh, Sunday, July twenty fifth. That sucks because the field dimensions and quality inside AT and T are just historically. Maybe they'll do something different or crummy. But as long as those uh, we talk about this, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on this pod. We've talked about it on the radio show. As long as the um, uh, the field level suites are in place, the field itself physically cannot be any wider than like. 68 or 69 nice mm. yards wide and when they built the stadium with the fair uh, the world cup in mind the plan we were told was that they would essentially get rid of the field level suites so that they would have the space to do a proper you know closer to 80 yard wide field um and the way that they lay that grass on top of that concrete is criminal it's i've we've been andy and i've been down on the floor for you know some of these games uh for soccer games and it's literally like playing on concrete just Mm. with a layer of grass on it it's not nice so i don't think anybody likes doing it no no but it would be nice to have the u.s come to dallas i mean we we never get them here because it's like a road game but um you know it'd be cool yeah, the Cotton Bowl. Oh my gosh! And then if, I'm assuming the games up at, at Toyota Stadium are just minnow games, correct? Yeah, it's basically probably what you'd call it as the games nobody else wanted. I mean, it's. Um, <laughs> let me look real quick. Um, well, well, while you're looking at that, I know people were asking on Twitter earlier, they're like, "Why doesn't Dallas get U.S. games?" And it's because the value of selling tickets is all in the Mexican games. And yeah, and I and I, I'm gonna guess between those three Mexican games, they're gonna have, they're gonna. I don't know. They'll probably break 250,000 seats, right? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be up there. And plus, if, you, if you're if you the U.S., you don't want to play down here because there'll be more road opposition fans than U.S. fans. Uh, the games at Toyota Stadium are El Salvador versus Caraco, El Salvador versus a preliminary winner, and then Martinique versus a preliminary winner, and then Caraco versus a preliminary winner. So it's going to be a bunch of teams that are – you know, unless you're into one of those teams, it's hard to get like really excited about them. But some of those teams are pretty good. Caracas pretty good, and so is El Salvador. So I mean, there's some mm. good soccer to be played there. 
someone's listening to this and screaming in their speaker, it's Curacao. Oh, Wait, is it I Curacao? didn't know that because yeah. of alcohol. Yeah. Well, here, let me, I'll, if it, if this is a safe space, I'll just tell you, I don't think I could point out where Martinique or Curacao are on a map. Oh, no, I, I for the longest time, I thought that country was called Blue Curacao for the drink. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought it was called Caraco. That's my bad, guys. <laughs> I think that sounds better than Curacao, but yeah. Whatever. All right. Uh, anything else that we need to touch on today, boys, in this ultra, ultimately depressing episode of Third Degree of the Podcast? I'm sure there's something, but that's a whole lot, and I can't remember what else. It's all uh, floated out there, of my head. There's some soccer happening that might not be depressing this weekend. Uh, you know, MPSL kicked off last week with the Vaqueros going down to Temple and getting their asses handed to them and this <laughs> this weekend Denton Diablos kick off the season at, uh, at home against KE you know the, the Houston weird team Fort Worth uh, host Brownsville both on Saturday uh, 7 and 7.30 kickoff so you know get out and experience live soccer maybe see a local team win for a change right. uh, you know uh, John Leonard wrote a nice uh, season preview for the Diablos. Uh, Alex did one for Fort Worth last week. So, you know, get prepped for some local uh, local soccer. And whenever you read an article by John Leonard, you have to read it in this voice like this to yourself, right? Sound a bit like Mickey Mouse then. I was waiting for the... Oh shit! It's back to Dan's impressions. Yeah, I think we just had the sh- the cold open. Yeah, North Texas plays on Saturday, Sunday, so there's they're at home too. So all there right, you go. go team with no nickname. Yeah, they're playing Tormenta, who have no regional name. Well, <laughs> don't forget, everybody, that Third Degree the podcast is brought to you by Soccer Ninety. The new MLS gear has showed up in the shop, including a super sweet FC Dallas Dallas Till I Die scarf. They've got the team patches and the tees. And check out new arrivals and make Soccer 90 your source for all your FC Dallas and North Texas SC gear. And, of course, just because you are very special, you know that, right, listener? You are a third-degree listener, which means you receive 25% off. A whole quarter of your purchase is saved when you use the code thirddegree at the check out at soccer90.com dan thank you for your time today and comedic wit thank you for your three-part time today Mm, it was very difficult heavy lifting buzz thank you for all your insights sir oh you're welcome i was very angry today sorry i love a feisty buzzard man i love it when you get passionate and special thanks to steve fenn uh the man with all the tableau goodness and his insights into the salary dump it was great to have him on and thank you fc dallas curious fan oh don't forget to buy your fc dallas curious t-shirt over at Buzz's uh, t-shirt store because that's, I can't wait to see somebody wearing one of those. I may have to come up and give you a giant hug. Uh, Thank you, FC Dallas Curious fan. We will speak to you next week on hopefully a more positive and happy edition of Third Degree, the podcast. Wait, he's paid how much? Third Degree, the Third Degree Net Podcast. Third Degree, the Third Degree Net Podcast. Third Degree, Never again. Third degree, the third degree never again.